We're back. We're here for another episode with me, Lawrence Shaw, and... Me, Derek Pittman. How you doing, buddy? You right? I'm all right. We're back in full lockdown recording mode again, which is very similar to our between lockdown recording modes. <laughs> yeah. 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 You've been keeping safe, been keeping well? Yeah, I have. I, I've, I've been keeping exceptionally well. As regular listeners will know, I recently got a dog, and you can possibly hear her in the background barking and yapping at me for abandoning her downstairs for 10 minutes to come up and record the podcast. Um, but I've been having loads of walks, so I've been getting my government mandated exercise under my belt and I, I i'll be honest i'm gonna just drop this in i had the best archaeology walk the other day it just it just cheered me up and it, it restored my faith in getting out and about in the countryside and it's a long story so i'll cut it as short as i can but there's an ironstone outcrop that i've always been quite interested in from a <laughs> from a prehistoric production perspective and i i'd never i'd never climbed on top of it and I'd always been looking at it and thinking, oh, I must come and analyse this. I must do some work here somewhere. And I went up on top and there is a staggering Bronze Age Barrow Cemetery, a, a crescent of round barrows looking out over Pool Harbour. And it is one of the most staggering archaeological locations I've ever been to. And yet I'd walked past it about 100 times and never noticed or looked at it. It's not on the OS map, so I, I, I can be forgiven for that, but it is in the in the Sites and Monuments Register, so I should have probably known. <laughs> but it was Am just I cool. right to think that I climbed over the barrows before you? Did, I think because I did. got to do that orienteering yeah, race when yeah. you broke your wrist. Deeply, deeply irritating. So that broken wrist has ruined another <laughs> archaeological moment for me. But it's really oh, cool. And what? the other cool thing is it's got some um, Second World War foxholes in it um, from training exercises. So it's got that long sense nice. of place. And, uh, just, a, just a cool yeah. site. Very cool site. Oh, nice. Anyway, oh, that's good. How about you, dude? Uh, well, you, you're making me making me feel a bit jealous. I'm, I'm sort of, I've got mixed mixed feelings at the moment. So, um, as of a couple of days ago, I've gone into self isolation because my partner Joe, who um, was was working on the BBC Rickshaw Challenge for children in need, unfortunately, the event got cancelled because um, one of the one of the crew got uh, tested positive for coronavirus, and everyone was sent home. So I'm now in self isolation with Joe. But the day before she arrived, I picked up a new puppy. So we, we got a puppy to look hey. after, which is great. And, <laughs> and then just to, to add insult to injury, the fact that I can't go out for nice archaeological walks like you, I've just got a new bike and they've emailed me to say I can pick it up, but oh. I can't pick it up for another week and a half. <laughs> but uh, all things considered, I'm pretty good. So how is self-isolation <laughs> with two bombs? Um, interesting. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it's great. Rocket's a legend and Ringo is teaching him how to be chill. Although Ringo's not that chill anyway, so uh, I'm not sure if it's the blind leading the blind. But no. yeah. Coming up next week, career in collie puppies. But far more interesting than our, uh, our puppy stories and uh, lockdown and whatnot is this week's guest on the podcast. We're really fortunate to have been joined by Matt Ritchie, who's the archaeologist for Forest and Land Scott. I think I got that right, Matt, haven't I? Forestry and land. Forestry and land. Nearly, nearly. Welcome. How are you doing? Thank you very much. Not not bad, thank you. Uh, not not quite in lockdown, but still working from home uh, and enjoying watching the seasons roll by, but, but not really enjoying working from the end of the kitchen table. I'd love to get back out uh, and for life to get back to normal. Where is home? Where are you based normally? Based up in Inverness, uh, which is very handy for work. Uh, we've got lots of... Uh, forest in the highlands and down the west coast um, and it's easy to jump on the, the car and drive down the A9 to get to the south of Scotland so uh, uh, yeah it's, it's pretty centrally based and it's it's uh, it's got a lovely microclimate as Inverness we're protected by the Murray Firth 
from the majority of the North Sea throws at us, um, protected by the mountains from anything the Atlantic throws at us. So it's uh, it's it's got a nice microclimate. Oh, sounds delightful. Sounds delightful. Um, we're we're going to do an interview proper with you in a second, Matt. But we we tend to try and kick these things off with a, a, a quick catch up on things that have caught our attention over the, the last week. So. Um, I know you guys have got some interesting ones to 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 bring in in a second, so I'm going to kick off if that's all right with you guys. But I, I just thought I'd highlight. I um, obviously in England we've been in lockdown um for just over a week now, and and that lockdown ran over Remembrance Sunday, and I, I know there were lots of nice events planned and and activities that that were associated with wartime venues and and memorial sites and whatnot, and um, I was just I was reflecting on that and I was very fortunate the week before to have been invited to an 80 year uh, commemoration event to a the downing of a Polish fighter pilot just north of Portsmouth on the south south coast of England and uh, but what was really nice about this in is that the, the group that had organized it was a um, a local reenactment group and that they had a, had a lovely service that, that I attended and we got to um to have a moment silent and it was a bit ref- a nice reflective time because it was, it was the, the day after Boris had announced that we were going back into lockdown so it's sort of remembering some of the, the the harder struggles we had to face rather than sitting at home and enjoying the telly in the evening and and just generally just being a decent human being around uh, your neighbours and whatnot but um, um, that that was a nice reflective moment but also these guys had arranged for 12 second world war vehicles to drive through one of the um through one of our woodlands in the forestry england woodlands estate so um got to um these are all big open vehicles and everyone was uh, had been in their social bubbles and were, were masked up and i got to sit in this this fantastic um is it willie's jeep um and got to sit in that and got to to have a look along the top of this this beautiful ridgeway on the south downs um sat next to some beautiful prehistoric barrows at one point and um it was just a really nice event and it, it was a good way to reflect uh, on if not least remember um what happened all those years ago but also take stock of what's going on around us today and and perhaps provide some context was that those photos you posted on instagram that looked a little bit like dad's army <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit like that. And they did forget the firing pin because they were going to set the gun off. So it was a bit of a damn squid. There was an element of uh, Dad's Army to it. But I mean, the, the thought was there and the, the meaning was there. And um, it was, yeah, it's a lovely event. And it's just a shame that other things like that couldn't have happened this year. And it was a much more muted affair. Yeah, the world of uh, post-COVID, post-vaccination, positive future that we're all excited about at the moment is going to be quite a good one, isn't it? Because they'll be making up for all of mm. this lost time. <laughs> <laughs> that's it um matt as the guest what about you what's caught your attention or been on your mind it would have to be the stonehenge bypass uh not that i know anything about it being uh at least 100 miles north of the border um so it'd be interesting to hear your guys take on it um is it is it a good thing or a bad thing or would it not be easier just to to take the traffic away all together and let the road grass over. Oh, you, you've you've brought an interesting one there, Matt. I know. Um, I, I don't. You worked on the Stonehenge Riverside projects aspects, as, or some aspects of the Stonehenge Riverside projects, well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I I did some analysis on that project, and it is it is one of those landscapes that I mean, it's 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 chocked full of archaeology. I should probably preface this with I I don't know the full details of the arguments on all sides, and I'm just shooting from the hip here. But whenever I see an article about the road development pop up or a new development in the great saga of the Stonehenge Tunnel, I must admit my heart drops a bit and I think, 
that's a headline that could have been an interesting discovery or an interesting new find or a site that no one's heard of or something interesting, something beyond the Stonehenge landscape. It could be something that widens the story of archaeology rather than the same thing again and again. And I'm going to take it a step further and say, I'm not all that fussed about Stonehenge. And I'm not all that fussed about Stonehenge's landscape. Yes, I appreciate from an archaeological perspective it's magnificent and all of that. But the, the, the amount of investment, the amount of academic attention, the amount of commercial attention, the amount of attention that goes into that landscape, if you were to spread that around the nation, you'd get a wonderful understanding of British prehistory in a way that I don't think you can by focusing on one anomalous site in southern Britain. What would be your take, Matt, from a, a Scottish perspective and Derek's views there? I think Derek's quite right. Stonehenge does have a, it, it receive a lot of attention, uh, but it is an iconic site. Uh, and it, it's good to see uh, see the archaeology in the news or see, see, the, see the, 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 the debate in the news. Um, but it's sad that um, it's just taken so long for, for anyone to get to... Um, to do something about what it must be a horrendous problem uh, of going down to uh, um, to visiting a site like that, but having the the traffic thunder by so so close to it. Um, I think I was I'd, I'd be I guess a little bit reminded by Scarabray up in Orkney, which is a site very close to my heart. I, I visited it as a child, uh, and at the time, you know, visitor pressure was 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 pretty low. So I remember crawling in and amongst the buildings, you know, get, get going through the passageways and underneath the lintels through the doors. Um, and recently, having gone back there in the in the age of cruise ships, where a, a big cruise liner can dock at Kirkwall and uh, discharge three thousand folk, um, and then you know several coach loads will turn up at Scarabray all at the same time. Uh, I was there on a Tuesday, a wet Tuesday morning, and there had to be about three hundred people walking round. Uh, the only path that you're allowed to go around to look at uh, the village of Scarabray, and uh, the whole atmosphere, the, the 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 whole the character of the site was just destroyed um, as a result of visitor pressure that that we can't do anything about. Um, and I guess Stonehenge is a little bit the same. We can't do anything about uh, modern life intruding mm -hmm. on what is a very special place. Um, so hopefully the tunnel will do something, something mm -hmm. to help that. But whether it's whether it's enough or the right the right option, I, I don't know, I'm afraid. You've missed a trick there with Scarra Bray, Matt, because I was there on first thing on a um, on the 2nd of January this year, and it was completely empty. I, mean, <laughs> uh, I went through the, the uh, reception, I paid my paid my fee, had the site to myself. So that's the, the trick you're missing with it, with that particular site. Um, for, for my two pence, if it's worth it, is I, I, I'm a pragmatist, I think, in general. And I think... Um, in general, the proposal is a really positive thing. I think um, it, it by removing the traffic and that noise from the setting of that World Heritage Site, that scheduled monument, that that amazingly impressive landscape, you are adding something really beneficial, not least that, as Matt says, it's going to grass up and add some improved ecology and, and some, some, some much-needed ecosystem services and all the other bits and bobs that go with that. But um, it's also... A one-off opportunity to do this and if it's not done it's not gonna get done and um it's it's much easier to pick holes but it's much harder to find solutions to these problems and get these things such big things like this over the line and i've got a lot of time for the people that have put thought and consideration and 
sort of tweaked the project. I know there are still some questions around the alignments of exits with the um, with the solstice, for example. But these are all little things that could potentially be tweaked further down the line. I'm amazed that it's got been given a nod, and it, it it's kind of reassuring. And the, the discoveries, and I, I believe um, a large commercial unit locally has been awarded the the contract to to do the archaeological work, and the potential for that in itself to enhance our our knowledge and understanding is is fantastic and also everyone always thinks of the Stonehenge envelope no one ever really looks south of that road so there's potential of joining up the landscape with the south actually allowing people to look and engage with that southern part of the area rather than just look north just look towards the curses just look towards the avenue and all the uh, the other monumental things that are out there so um by linking it up by it i i, I think from my point of view, at least, the the benefits far outweigh the the negatives. I must admit, I'm I'm not fully appraised of the ins and outs of the negatives and the positives. But I do remember when they moved the visitor centre. I think the experience of Stonehenge significantly enriched um, from when when the visitor centre was sort of plumb next to it, and there was a car park there, and it was kind of all in the immediate view shed. Whereas at least now, even with a the road there, you can kind of access the site from a distance. You can experience it in the landscape a little bit more. And I think if if we can move to somewhere where that experience is further enriched, then then brilliant. But I'd if I'm honest, I'd still rather visit Avebury. <laughs> yeah, Westwards. <laughs> That's where you want to go. A lovely Forestry England site where the uh, Salston stones, both at Avebury and Stonehenge, came from. <laughs> enough about Stonehenge that's had far too much airtime um should we move on to the interview proper yeah sounds good okay well Matt Matt thank you again for joining us um today for 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 catch up and for, for for taking part in the podcast um I did briefly briefly on uh, what the podcast consists of and how we'll move forward but I wonder if you could kick off like all, all our participants do just give us an idea of how you got into archaeology what it was that invited you into the subject and your career trajectory today so how you got to where you are and what it is that you do now and and tell us more well i've been thinking about this question and uh it's going to sound really pretentious but i'm then going to soon destroy that pretension <laughs> uh, by, by saying a series of stupid things but it, i've always been interested in time and place um and i time even, even from a, from an early age i was obsessed with asterisks uh, i'm still obsessed with asterisks and i think i've read every every story or oh, countless times uh, and so uh, growing up with the with the tales of this indomitable Gaul uh, and uh, his battles against the Romans as, as uh, must have been one of the the key uh, uh, um, inspirations for it I guess uh, but place as well I think all my earliest memories are very tied to place I don't know whether that's normal as everybody um, but I'm certainly I've always had an affinity to to place and and, and uh, special places, so so both parents were archaeologists, which might have had something to do with it as well. But I wasn't very interested in the archaeology for many years. But in 1982, uh, my mum was digging on the home of Papa Westry. She's digging the chamber tomb at uh, the north of the island, and at the south of the island, this is a tiny, tiny wee place uh, in the Northern Isles of Orkney. Um, and at the, the, the south of the island, there's this huge passage grave, home of Papa Westry South. Uh, and you see it as a, as a long earthen mound because it's been covered over. Uh, and you, you enter it through a hatch in the roof and you climb down this little metal um, ladder 
And then you're into this uh, long passageway or corridor, which is about 20 meters long, with 12 little passages, little um, um, yeah, um, cells come, uh, coming off the, the central corridor. And so I would, my mom and the team were digging at the, at, the, at the north and I would very quickly get bored of the actual excavation, which is a, a feature that has, has a continued throughout my career. <laughs> and, uh, I'd wander off and, I, and I'd wander down to the, the south of the island and, and climb into this, this, uh, this tomb. And it is just so special. So historic places and, and pre, particularly prehistoric places. I can't really be done with castles and ruins, but uh, uh, prehistoric places just float the boat. Um, and then married with the imagination that comes with uh, things like Asterix, things like Wolf Brother, Things like Wolf Hall. That's yeah. I, I I love the I love the imagination of the past, and that has led me to what am I now, 40, 46, and uh, twelve years with Forestry Commission in Scotland, uh, working on the side of the house that manages the National Forest Estate. Um, there are it's about nine percent of Scotland is National Forest Estate, which is is a fair amount of land. Um, most of it, unfortunately, covered by trees, uh, and it's at this point that I should say that uh, all the views, all the views in this interview, are my own and not those of my employers. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, when it's not covered by trees, we've got some cracking sites, and they are spread across the Highlands. They are spread across the Lowlands, Dumfries and Galloway, as islands like Mull and Arran. Uh, getting the ferry to Rassi. Uh, ferries will come up quite a lot throughout this uh, interview. I love a ferry. I just, the excitement of traveling to an island is, is, is exhilarating. Yeah, the current role is to look after the archeology span on Scotland's National Forest Estate. Uh, and that, that involves protection. So I, I help the guys on the ground in terms of uh, organizing walkover surveys and uh, guidance about marking off sites in front of harvesting and for, uh, uh, restocking and the likes. It goes through conservation where I uh, advise or procure projects on scrub control or, or masonry consolidation, uh, measured surveys to, uh, to inform that, uh, all the way through to presentation, which I guess we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later on. That's where my, my heart really lies on the in the outreach and uh, interpretation of, of archaeology, so uh, it's a really it's a really fascinating role because you, you you touch on lots of different levels of of heritage management, uh, and I'm working with lots of people. The the great majority of whom are outdoorsy at heart, which would be me as well. Uh, and and while of my colleagues, I reckon half half are solely interested in cutting and selling timber. Uh, the other half are solely interested in growing and caring for trees. And the two sides often don't see eye to eye, but they need each other. And I kind of, uh, you know, float around um, like an oversized satellite uh, chipping in every now and again, um, as do my ecological colleagues talking about um, uh, open habitats or native woodlands. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting role and a very challenging one. That's brilliant. I mean, there's a few things to pick up there. Firstly, 
I can see the Daily Mail headlines now. Forestry and Land Scotland say that Stonehenge New Road is a waste of time. That's that's going to be again. <laughs> 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 the Daily Mail never lies. So, um, <laughs> um, but secondary. So, w- would you say you um, you had a traditional trajectory into your job in that you you did your degree uh, or you you followed your, your traditional educational processes? I, I guess so. I mean, uh, I I. I had a degree in archaeology and then I uh, jobbed around as a contracting archaeologist for a bit. I did some very interesting uh, maternity covers uh, in both Historic Scotland as it was then and the the Royal Commission uh, on Ancient Historic Monuments in Scotland. Uh, And then I was fortunate enough to get a job down in Wales with Cantu, uh, where I scheduled um, largely it was prehistoric monuments, but um, it was all across Wales um, and made some great friends. Uh, loved Wales, fantastic place to be. Um, we lived in a little village just on the outskirts of Cardiff um, called Tongwinless, great memories. And uh, uh, yeah, when, when the time came and the, there was a, 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 the Forest Commission job came up, I mean, it's, I, I remember one of the, uh, they hit me with the, 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 the interview question was the first one and I could have seen it coming, but obviously hadn't bothered to think about it. Uh, was what, why do you want this job? And as I floundered around, um, I ended up saying something along the lines of, along the lines of I've, I've always thought the Forestry Commission was quite cool, um, which, which they liked. Uh, and it's that, I guess it's that kind of enthusiasm that's seen me through uh, uh, from, from uh, school days all the way to where I am now. Um, uh, and it would be something I would recommend to all early career archaeologists is, is uh, don't get bogged down and always be enthusiastic because people people pick up on enthusiasm and uh it gets you places that's really good advice i think um put drawing on drawing on the enthusiasm and, and making it a, a part of who you are and the, the role you're in um speaking of that enthusiasm I, I i sense i sense some bubbling enthusiasm there for for both islands and fairies and I'd, I'd quite like to pick up on that a little bit more and explore that that passion and where that comes from <laughs> i just love a fairy i really do so uh, uh the ferry to orkney you know you're going past the old man ahoy uh you're you're traveling from uh um thurzo uh over, over the minch uh sorry over the penland firth uh, it's it's a fantastic ferry. Uh, I get I get excited on the ferry to Arran on, on the ferry to Rassi is a nice one because it looks like the the island looks like the the, the land that time forgot. Um, I even get excited on the Cromarty de Nig ferry, which is a which is a niche ferry probably for uh, for many of you. Uh, Cromarty is at the tip of the Black Isle, and and you can get this car ferry in the summer to cross over from Cromarty to Nig. It takes about five minutes. It's a little turntable ferry <laughs> where you get two cars on, you drive on, and then they turn you all round and you drive off <laughs> to the other end. Um, but I even uh, uh, um, one for Lawrence, I got excited on the Studlands chain ferry. That's a fantastic ferry. Is that because you saw the Sutherland nudist sign? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It, it might have been thinking about Brown Sea Island, uh, but actually, to be fair, it was because I was going to see Henry's Fort or Fort, oh, was it Fort, Fort Henry. Henry. Fort Wonderful sight. Yeah. Possibly the greatest pull box known to man. Mm. <laughs> it's pretty long, that one, isn't it? Yes. Am I thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, Yes, I think it's, got, it's uh, a great story all, all as well, the, isn't it? Yeah, all of the main guys stood and watched a um, a DD, um, um, a norm, a practice Normandy landing from this enormous pillbox. It's very That's good. It's not as good as the ferry. To be fair. <laughs> Actually, just just very briefly, that 
that pillbox, that fort, goes back to something I mentioned early on. The foxholes on the barrows are in the same landscape of Operation Smash. So when they were bombing the landscape, looking out from Fort Henry, they were landing in the area of those round barrows. So it's uh, it's part of that same landscape. And I love that ferry. That's how I get to Yeah, Lawrence's and that's how I get to Derek's house. <laughs> <laughs> You're not telling me that you live in Studland. Uh, not too far from Studland. I live near, um, in Purbeck. So just, yeah, just set point, behind. Point Studland. on the map behind you, Derek. You can oh, see yeah, Brown Sea. Uh, down here. So Brown Sea's here. The chain ferry's here. This is great radio. This is great, great radio. radio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just behind the just behind the guitar down here. <laughs> Ferries are great. I mean, um, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, Matt, but um, I've been fortunate enough to work on uh, Easter Island now and again in what? the Cook Islands. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's obviously <laughs> did you that is do that my segue me. there <laughs> it's a bit of an on, on running joke I'm afraid Matt um, is there a ferry to Easter Island there's, there's not a ferry to Easter Island I mean there, there are cruise I mean, ships that, that was but... a tenuous segue <laughs> no 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 I'm thinking about um, the traditional um, the, the traditional Maori movement between islands and Easter Island so being boats. the, the uh, so, yeah boats yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, you can get on the Cook Islands you can get ferries to the outer islands and um uh, we we've just taken internal flights and i've always felt a bit sad about that but the the outer islands take about three to five days to get to another ferry <laughs> <laughs> but i always would love to have done it if calmac don't have a service to uh easter island i'm just not interested <laughs> <laughs> and, and as good as all that sounds it's not the sandbanks ferry let's, let's be honest <laughs> is it the world's most expensive ferry uh, second i think um the one on the isle of wight is more expensive for less distance uh, it's, it's a crummier yeah. ferry as well. I'm Maybe just we should do Monutrump's <laughs> um, Ferry Special Edition. <laughs> Britain's Best Ferries. That's going to be a spin-off podcast. <laughs> Sounds terrible. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> so you, you touched, as Derek said, there's a lot of enthusiasm there for a whole bunch of things, not least ferries. But um, I wonder if of all, all the bits you've been doing with Forestry and Land Scotland or any other bits, if there's a bit of work that you're particularly proud of or, or pleased with in the past. It would, it would have to be the two recent learning resources that we've put out um, of Into the Wildwoods uh, about the Mesolithic in Scotland's native woodlands and uh, the First Foresters uh, about the Neolithic. Um, and I guess, again, this is thinking about careers and maybe advice to early career archaeologists. It took, took me a while to build up the confidence to go for something like this. Uh, I, I dabbled in learning resources and in uh, interpretation. Um, uh, but it was only trial and failure and experimentation uh, that, that, that led me to the point where I was confident enough to uh, put a lot of resource, time and effort into these two uh, resources, which are, which are quite unusual. They're, they're very design-led. They're very visual. Um, there are some unconventional ideas in there in terms of the archaeology that they're trying to explain. Um, they're very much... A, targeted at the interested practitioner so I mean that I still haven't decided whether it's a good idea or not but I, I love the the characters that we've built into the booklets um, and I think that the characters these um, uh, are, are Mesolithic or Neolithic tribes are very important when it would come to the classroom teaching of uh, this kind of narratives that we're drawing on to explain Mesolithic life life in the woods the wild woods or to explain how the, the Neolithic first foresters would deal with life on the edges of these woods but the characters very much mean that to a to an adult audience they just look like kids books and i think that they've suffered a little bit because of that and they're certainly not kids books 
bits of them are for kids, obviously. You strip them apart, you're supposed to use them as tools, but they're much more about inspiring the practitioner and about um, providing inspiration across the board. So I'm very, very proud of them. And, and we work really hard, our, our range of collaborators working to uh, a singular vision, I guess. Um, one of my collaborators for Into the Wildwoods uh, wrote uh, at the end, uh, in, in congratulations, I may add, but, but she said uh, how amazed she was that such an incoherent plan uh, would, would come to, 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 such a, to, to have such a great result. <laughs> Um, it wasn't that incoherent, but it did change a bit because you've got to be flexible as, as new ideas come in um, or, or you change direction. But um, I think they're, they're ambitious pieces. Uh, they're, they're accessible to a level, but they've got to remember that they, ain't, they are aimed at that interested practitioner. I'm not, I'm not trying to spread the love um, or, or dumb down. I'm, I'm, I'm very much trying to provide uh, a really quality product for, for someone who's who's already interested to pick up and run with. So, uh, yeah, I think those, and, and the fact that we're blending ecology uh, and nature with cultural heritage, uh, outdoor learning, um, creative artwork uh, with more uh, abstract archaeological ideas. I think that they're, they're quite, they're quite unusual. It does, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question for you guys. I did them the other way around. I did the Neolithic first, um, and then the Mesolithic uh, second, although they would obviously be read differently. But the Mesolithic is, I think life in the Mesolithic is quite easy to imagine. You kind of imagine, you could imagine yourself doing okay, right? You might kill yourself after eating the wrong mushroom eventually, <laughs> but I'm sure we could all fish or hunt or, or live under a live in a wee camp quite happily and I know I'm being a bit facetious but life in the Mesolithic is something quite easy to grasp and I think that's probably why Michelle Paver's um, Wildwoods or uh, sorry uh, Wolf Brother books uh, were so popular um, whereas life in the Neolithic is a little bit different and trying to explain uh, some of the really difficult ideas particularly in terms of just the bonkers monuments that they were building um, the, the amount of timber they must have had to shift to create fields, the, um, the life expectancy, the, 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 the unrelenting grimness of having to um, rely on the seasons and placate the priests mm. that are making you put up these bonkers monuments. It, it's a very different life to try and explain to folk. And I do wonder if you guys would agree with that. I haven't even dabbled in the Bronze Age or, or, <laughs> or trying to get into the, Neal into the, the Iron Age. But uh, just trying to explain life in these deep, deep time it can, can be quite, quite interesting. I think it's a really interesting point. And that, that change is a, is a time period that's always interested me. And it's so often in, in at least the popular side of archaeological outputs and, and literature, it's seen as a development from something to another. But I tend to see that that change as almost a collapse of something that worked quite well and then getting trapped in a system that is much harder and more complex and kind of a, a descent into complexity rather than a development into it. So you've got this you've got this system that works well and everyone is perfectly in tune with the, the, the number of resources that exist, the, the environment is set perfectly up for kind of human environment interaction in that way. And then 
something changes, perhaps someone innovates or experiments, and that system that worked brilliantly well collapses into social organisation, chiefdom's hierarchy, and all this <laughs> other nonsense that just just ties you to these life ways that make no sense. And we've been stuck there ever since. That's, that's brilliant. I'm sensing maybe they're doing a linking resource in that case. <laughs> I, the prehistoric rat race. Yeah. The descent of human beings. The descent of humankind from the megalithic to today. It's the end of the world as we know it. Um, I, I should say this is one of the reasons I was really keen to have you on the podcast, uh, Matt, because my, my envy of the outputs that you've put, you've done in the last few years is unmeasurable, I think. Uh, I first came across your work, I think there was a CIFA conference up in Glasgow many, many years back, like 2012, something like that. And um, we arrived at the conference hall and there were just massive pull-up posters of beautiful 3D laser scans that had been undertaken and loads of outreach and engagement and celebration of the the amazing historic environment that you guys have and you manage and you and you promote and you oh, promote you and um, that envy and that that Im- sort of impressedness as um, for want of a better use of English um, has only grown in the last few years with the production of your Lego educational resources who doesn't love Lego right um, and then to to some of the more artistic work that you've done as well and I don't know if you want to touch on any of your um, your EP work that you've done here. Um. I have, well, I've, I've commissioned a couple of uh, albums um, to uh, uh, to try and promote work that we've done, whether it be um, creative archaeological visualization through laser scanning. Um, that's the MacTallan and Craig uh, LP, where where the musicians were asked to um, uh, took them to various sites, and we we talked about the archaeology, and I knew kind of what the kind of music we'd get from. From the crew that we we uh, we, are, we we commissioned, who were very much electronica, um, uh, in in the sort of a, a shamanistic electronica, uh, and we did a, a follow up, which was the a musical reinterpretation of the sorrow of Deirdre, uh, as a result of uh, an excavation that we run in partnership with uh, the Nevis Landscape Partnership, the HLF, uh, on Dunjardle, Deirdre's Dune in in Glen Nevis. Uh, and that was, I, I just wanted to be able to, to, to haul in John Kenny and his Carnix and, and try and see what, what, what would happen if I put uh, John and his, his Carnix, which is astonishing. If you've, if you've not heard him play this, this replica um, uh, Iron Age horn, um, I, I expected when I saw it the first time, I expected a couple of loud parts. Uh, and instead, <laughs> I got this um, jazz trumpet, a really <laughs> delicate, amazing, amazing musician. Um, so putting him together with the, the guys from Firecracker Recordings for The Sorrow of Deirdre worked really well. So we've produced these two LPs, and I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of them as well, the CIFA conference in, in Glasgow. It was quite quite funny because I, I, I do like these big banners where you're, you, 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 uh, you can use the, the illustrations, the visualizations from a survey and, and really make a statement. And... I'm always trying to encourage more people to do measured survey because I think it's really important that we actually record our um, our, our these monuments, brocks and dunes, the the um, uh, a lot of, uh, record these things before they before they go. And measured surveys is is an art form. You know, it can inform conservation, it can inform uh, condition monitoring, all that stuff. But actually, that the pictures themselves can inspire and create interest and that was what I was trying to do sometimes I go a bit 
overboard. And there was a comment at that CIFA conference that you could see my exhibition from the moon. Um, uh, and, and maybe that was a bit, right, you know, so. going, <laughs> going, going a bit over the top. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, the, and the LPs are, are, are fun. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it all works to, to promote, I guess. What's really nice is it's not traditional outreach and an engagement, and that's not meant to be in a derogatory term either to yourself or to anyone that does traditional outreach and engagement. But what is nice to see is, is something different now and again. And sometimes it, it you might find it, I don't know if this is the case, you might not find it, you might find it doesn't always work. Someone might say you can see it from the moon, for example. But unless you try these things, um, you you don't realise if it if it's if it's worth it or not and you can follow the traditional routes and be safe or you can and I think what I'd like to, uh, hopefully this, you don't mind me saying this I think you, you can see with a lot of your work at least with your outreach stuff is that you, you're trying something different and it, uh, I, hopefully uh, from my perspective it looks like it pays off a lot of the time I, I hope so and thank you very much uh, I do I, it is about experimentation and sometimes it doesn't work but sometimes it does I think uh, you have to try and experiment to uh innovate and, and to push things forward. There's always going to be an underlying message or theme. In general terms, I you know it is that call to arms to survey more, uh, create the visuals, and then play with the visuals, use them for uh, a range of different products. And don't be scared to, to duplicate or to reuse stuff. I'm, I'm constantly reusing things. Just to add on to that, what, what's quite nice about what you just said as well is that particularly with, with survey data, even with things like LIDAR and laser scanning uh, or terrestrial or airborne or, or measured surveys, you can get people that will do these things and they just sit in a cupboard or on a hard drive and they're never seen again. So, so to come up with ways of reusing them and repurposing them and engaging people on multiple levels is, is, is just awesome. I always try to remember the archaeology. So uh, the visual has to go with a caption. And the caption mm -hmm. has to explain what it is you've done and how you've done it. Too many times I've seen a point cloud with no caption and it does, you know, you don't know what it is <laughs> or you don't know, there's no explanation of how a laser scanner works. Um, it's always got to be that, that, and, and particularly again with, with learning resources, um, it really annoys me when I see kids in a sandpit digging away for, <laughs> for objects <laughs> because they're not learning anything. Mm -hmm. You know, they might, when you pick, find that object and then they, you, you ask them to fill out a recording sheet, you explain about recording, um, that's bringing in the archaeology. But all the way through through these learning resources, there's that underlying message about that archaeological methodology. This is how we do it. This is why we do it. It's trying to explain the ethos and share our values, share our mm. passions for what we do. Uh, that's fantastic. And I must admit, when when Lauren sent me a picture of the, the records you had pressed, I was filled with envy, not least because I'd quite like to get some career in ruins pressed on vinyl now. It seems like a very nice way of recording something for prosperity. But um, I mean, that, that is an incredible suite of, of, of work. Um, is there anything when you when you look around to what other people are doing that you think you 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 have that same envy of oh I I wish I'd thought of that or or what a wonderful project or I'd love to have been involved in that. I've thought about people who I admire. Uh, I have a, a lovely quote from from Martin Carver, um, who has written a, a wide range of books that I really really like. Uh, his making archaeology happen. I'll read you the quote that I picked. Um, he writes: Archaeology demands both art and science. A scientific adventure in pursuit of a story, observation in harness with imagination, precision in record, persuasion in prose. <laughs> uh, 
he can write and uh, and and he's a good thinker um and so i'm i've got a lot of time and admiration for for martin um similarly a book i've recently read um by mark edmonds uh, orcadia going back to my uh, the island theme um every page has something quotable on it his his writing is astonishing mm-hmm. um and it's 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 lyrical it's beautiful i greatly admire anyone who uses the power of prose uh, as martin says there mm. or or our um or our to, to stimulate our imagination to, to and, and good design but um i have to say as archaeologists we're absolutely shocking at providing feedback and support to each other <laughs> um i don't know whether that's just that's across the board that's just humans in general but um i've been really disappointed sometimes i've written a paper that i've really really put a lot of time and effort into i've really poured out a lot of uh, heart and soul and I get nothing nothing <laughs> back from anyone so uh I'll get some another message in terms of a career is I have tried I I do try to to put praise where praise is due um and to tell people when they've done and they've written something that I've really enjoyed you know they'll get an email or or uh um they'll get some encouragement and and, and it's a shame we don't do that more often to each other across the board so um when you were thinking about um someone who I've been really impressed by um I am going a little bit off reservation so I'm I'm not going to be looking particularly at, at archaeology there's a chap called Christopher Fleet and he is the map curator at the National Library of Scotland uh he's a public servant I've met him a couple of times he's a lovely guy as well and he has single-handedly um driven forward the most innovative and accessible online map resource um, that I think the world has yet to see, right? Um, Every map that he can lay his hands on, his team scans, rectifies, and puts up online from estate maps through to military maps through to um, all the Ordnance Survey maps from the first edition onwards. Um, He's single-handedly driven that forward over the last 20 years and found the time to write three amazing books on mapping Scotland uh, with Berlin, who I guess would be Scotland's version of Thames and Hudson, um, proper publishers of consequence. So these are, he's written three coffee table books of such quality that I could weep with him <laughs> and provided us with this incredible research resource. Um, so yeah, my, my, uh, my uh, props and respect would go out to Chris Fleet. I'm going to just take a moment to pause on the podcast and thank Chris Fleet directly because that resource has changed the way I teach for the last two years entirely. It's allowed me to set homework every week where there's a resource where students can go and actually practice the things I'm preaching in a way that was not possible before. Yes, we had things like Digimap, which were okay and serve a certain purpose, but the way in which those maps are rectified, stitched together, work within the database, it is it is the pinnacle of how a database should be. And I absolutely love it. And anyone who ever asks me, where can I find something? I direct them to that. So it's really nice to know who I can thank for that. As you say, that, that resource is a game changer for heritage management uh, um, for on a whole scale of different things. So uh, and, and public archaeology. So getting volunteers, local history groups involved with that has been incredible as well. So fantastic shout, Matt. Fantastic. <laughs>
So we've gone through your career. We've uh, we, we've gone through the aspects of work that you're particularly proud of, or Chris's work there that you're envious of in the bits that he's done. Um, we're moving on now to our final question on the podcast, and uh, you said you like. Um, looking at time and space and that, that's really fortunate because Derek and I have a working time machine and uh, anyone that comes on the podcast gets a free journey a return journey on our time machine and it doesn't have to be a specific time you, it's got like one of those old school Apple or iPod scrollers so you can sort of flip back and forwards as you need to a reel if you will um, but all, all we need to know is what dates we're typing in and what location um, and it's yours for the for the trip this is my favourite of your questions. I think this is a fantastic question. And I was going to say that where I choose does entirely depend on how I travel. Because if you're going to fire me back naked in a bubble, never to be returned, right, a la Terminator, I don't want to go, right? <laughs> Whereas uh, if I get to go in a proper time machine, then I've, I've given a lot of a uh, a lot of thought to this. And, and one thing, and it was, it was going back to almost the first question, Usborne Time Travellers books, right? When I was little, I was given the Usborne Time Travellers books of Viking readers, which I dug out. And I'm lucky enough, I've got two copies of this. I've got an original, which is from 1977. And in which case, at that point, the, the hat the wee boy travels in uh, is a helmet, a tra- proper time travelling helmet. Uh, and I've, I've grown up with that, that image. I loved this book, loved it. And I would recommend anyone to go and find the Usborne book of Viking Raiders by James Graham Campbell. Oh. But 1977, it's a proper helmet. And then they reprinted it in 1997 and, and redesigned it. And the helmet has gone into a kind of funny looking goggly thing, which is not quite the same. It doesn't have the same cachet, or, or I would argue. But equally, they've taken out half the words. And I, 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 it's pretty sad that when I was a kid, and I must, you know, that's, so that's early 80s. I'm reading this book and I'm really enjoying it. And it struck a massive chord. And it's because it's really detailed. There is lots of narrative about the characters and about the different people in the family. You fly, the, 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 the time traveler flies over the landscape wearing this helmet. And there's lots of these incredible um, uh, um, sort of aerial shots of, of, of Viking villages and raids and the likes by Stephen Cartwright. And then 20 years later, they decide that to dumb it down and take away half the words, and it's not the same. Uh, and I, uh, I think that's quite, it's quite an interesting insight, I guess, into how we teach kids archaeology these days and then history, because the original is streets ahead. Uh, and and uh, so I would urge everyone to go and read Viking Raiders, the 1977 first edition. However, so if you're going to give me a helmety type thing and I get to go and fly around, that's one thing. But you're telling me that I can actually go back myself in time and and, and interact. There are a few rules that we've signed the Temporal Accord, so you're not allowed to um, necessarily influence anything. Um, but you can observe, you can observe. I've done that already in that case. I've travelled already in time because uh, oh. I went to the Bolin <laughs> Viking Festival. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so this is in, uh, in Volin in the... Uh, the northwest uh, of Poland on the, on the Baltic coast, and they take their reenactments really, really seriously. There is an enormous Viking marketplace which is full of people from all over Europe selling their wares that they have been creating over the course of the year. And these things, these are these are proper, right? That this is, you know, you could you could get yourself entirely kitted out from start from start to finish as a Viking. 
um, if you had the money, obviously, uh, at this festival. And there are points when you're walking down the, um, the timber pathway, one of the main streets with the, with the tents, the, with the, the blacksmiths, with the, the food stalls, and you look back, and, and given that there's about 50% of the folk there are already dressed as Vikings, um, it really is amazing. It, it's, it's properly putting you in, uh, in, in, in time and place, and, and, and it's, it's the best kind of time travel that we can possibly do is, is a really good reenactment like that. Um, so I had time travel already, and I was thinking to myself, well, I'd like to do that again. Um, and that was very much about a festival or, a, or going to a marketplace or go, going to an event. That's what I'd, I'd quite like to do. And so I thought of all the places where I would really, really like to go to an event would be a Maltese Neolithic temple. Because these sites are, I think they're my favourite sites type that I have of, of all my travels and I, I haven't traveled widely but it's been very European um no ferry to Eastern Ireland obviously <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the Maltese temples are just something about them they're so special and they're so uh characterful and the way that they've been presented they're 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 the, the two I'm particularly thinking of a Hagar Quim and Menadra they're 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 under these huge sails that protect them from uh, or teepees almost, enormous great things, and they protect them from the elements, uh, but let the light in and they still feel um, open and airy and, and, and like, a, um, a, like a ruin, um, but without the kind of concrete cap that of, of my first site, the home of Papa Westry, which was very enclosed, but equally you do look up and there's uh, the skylights and the roof and there's, uh, there's the, you know, you're not entering through the proper entrance and there's a concrete cap on it. The, 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 these Maltese temples are just wonderful, but God knows what went on in them. And I, I would like to go to a, um, a, a religious festival uh, at Hagar Quim and just uh, see what was going on. That would be uh, yes, please. That is a fantastic one. And, and a unique one. I don't think we've had anything even slightly close to that yet, Derek, have we? No, that's that's superb. And I think, yeah, going back to a to, to a festival, to an event like that sounds sounds like a very nice day out on the time machine. Maybe we should uh, have a trip, Lawrence. I just want to double check. Matt, are you sure you don't want to go to the Stonehenge landscape before the road going past it was created? <laughs> you could go to the future and see what it looks like. <laughs> I guess everyone who you ask this question goes backwards. And I did think about going forwards, but uh, unfortunately, our immediate future is pretty grim. And I reckon our, our, our long-term future is pretty grim <laughs> as well. So I'm, I'm happy going backwards. And I'd more than happily go back to the age of Stonehenge and watch a festival there. I think it'd be quite cool. Yeah, it wasn't there one in the 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for your time today. That's been a fantastic um, chat with you and a really, really decent addition to the Career in Ruins podcast. Well, thank you very much for, for asking me. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Oh, it's been our pleasure. Join us for the next podcast. No hints as to who it might be just yet. <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, follow us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Send us any messages. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already. And um, we'll catch up with you soon.